0: Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now... He has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Father, carry us through the teaching this morning. Again, as we prayed before with revelation, Lord. And we use that word revelation, Father. We're not, we're not talking about some esoteric spiritual thing what we 're talking about father is real understanding that affects and and changes the heart a, a seeing and a hearing by spirit, even beyond understanding in the mind because Lord, we know if we if we see by spirit, then we will understand in mind if spirit is affected. Mind will be as well. And we just ask, Lord, that You would teach us these things in a way that is not only real and genuine and relevant in our lives right now, but, but goes beyond that. Draws us near to the throne of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. And we're going to do the whole chapter. But I just wanted to start with those six verses. And again, verse 6, He has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as He is also the mediator of a better covenant on which has been acted, enacted better promises. It's always better with Jesus. You know, Better than where we are. If you want to know where you're going to be tomorrow in the Lord, it's going to be better than it is today. If you want to know what the future holds, it will be better Because as you walk with Jesus, it gets better. Or your circumstances may not. Circumstances may at times get worse. But the peace, the joy, the reality of life in Christ is always better than any other option we have. Have you seen the new um, iPad Pro commercial? Anyone seen that? It's an interesting commercial in what it suggests. It follows a young preteen girl and she's going all over town using her little iPad Pro. What she's doing with an iPad Pro, I don't know. None of my kids are going to have an iPad Pro when they're preteen. Anyway, she's got this, she's running around and she's using this thing to buy coffee and text her friends and, and be online. And then at the end of the commercial, it shows her lying on the grass. She's got a tiny little fold out keyboard and she's typing on her iPad Pro. Her mom comes out and says, hey, what you doing on your computer? And she replies, what's a computer? The implication is MacBooks and laptops are obsolete. That they are no longer the thing. Now, granted it's an ad campaign, but I saw that and it made me think, wow, things are moving. How quickly those things that we've grown accustomed to... You watch a TV show today and you see a computer from just five years ago and it's huge! (laughs) And you think, wow, that's dated. Or you see an old TV show where someone picks up a phone and pulls a big antenna out of the top of it and you go, wow, that's a long time ago. (laughs) It's amazing how quickly things become uh, obsolete. Mashable.com tells us that the iPhone X... Some call it the iPhone X. It's the iPhone X. That's already history. If you haven't gotten one yet, maybe you never would. On Friday, the king of Apple analysts, Ming-Chi Ko of KGI Securities, correctly predicted Apple will soon be discontinuing the iPhone X. That's right, Apple is due to kill off its most expensive iPhone after the summer, right when the next generation of iPhones is due, and less than a year after its debut. And it didn't even go on sale until November of 2017. And they're already ready to kill it off. Now in his note, this, this guru uh, said that the iPhone 10 was being put out to pasture early to prevent any potential, potential cannibalization of the new iPhone line that's planned for this fall, according to Mac Rumors. It comes and it goes faster than you can even imagine. I mean, how do you like them apples? <laughs> Apparently they don't want one apple to spoil the barrel, To say. Or an apple a day will keep customers away. I don't know, that might work. Now you may not care about apples so much. Maybe you're an Android user. Maybe you're not a user at all. Maybe you feel like this whole thing is compa- comparing apples to oranges. Or maybe, maybe you've just reached an age where all technology is no longer appealing. Appealing. So I'm just trying to get to the core issue here. And that is this. We live in a world of relentless change. Relentless change. It's been said that the only constant in life is change. Now I have always believed that, but there is a constant that never changes. And you know where we're going with this. Jesus Christ is the same. Amen. Amen. The same yesterday and today and forever while everything else changes and everything else becomes obsolete. Not Jesus. He is the same. He is true. But it is true as well that nothing else seems to last. Keep that in mind. As we go into chapter 8 here, verse 1 tells us the main point in what has been said is this. Key in on that. This is the main point. It's taken him eight chapters to get there. He's building to this point now. This is the big point. This is where he was going. With all that we studied and talked about Wednesday night, and by the way, if you weren't here Wednesday, I strongly encourage you to listen to the teaching Wednesday night. Not because Pastor Rick brought it. But because if you don't know about Melchizedek, if you don't understand what the Hebrew writer is talking about in Hebrews chapter 7, you're still on milk. You're still on milk. And the antidote for milk-drinking Christianity is to get a big, thick, juicy steak. Well, chapter 7 is that steak. So I encourage you to feed on it as we went through it. It is necessary, even for what we're going to talk about this morning. The main point in what has been said is this we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Such a high priest. Jesus is such a high priest. And he's referred to 12 times that way in this sermon, our high priest. 12 times. But here's what we've got to understand about the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. This is the value, the importance of chapter seven leading into where we are in chapter eight. Jesus is not just the next generation of the Levitical priesthood. He is not the high priest 12S. (laughs) Jesus is the original high priest. The original. I mean, he's not even from the right tribe to be an extension of the Levitical priesthood. He's not of Levi's genes, as we talked about Wednesday. I had to use it one more time. It's too good. It's just too good. He is of the royal tribe of Judah, which by law means he should not be able to be a priest, but he is. He is the high priest. He is the priest and the king. The ruling priest that we talked about last week. And his priesthood is fundamentally different than the Levitical priesthood. One of the options I had in going through this this morning would be to lay out a list. And in fact, I'll encourage you, David Guzik does this. He has a list in his commentary, which you can find on blueletterbible.com, where he goes through and he compares the Levitical priesthood and the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus. And talks about the differences between the two. And the differences are stark and they are vast. Here's the main thing. The Levitical priesthood, like the Jewish tabernacle itself, has become obsolete. It no longer functions. And it's not because there's been a new upgrade or a new trend. It's obsolete because it was only ever a copy and a shadow of the original. Jesus came first. Jesus' high priesthood is the original model the Levitical priesthood borrows off of His and not the other way around. It's a complete paradigm shift and I think how many of us have thought or perhaps have been taught that Jesus is no next generation priest. He's the original and there is no other. None like Him. Isaiah forty three eleven. I even I am the Lord, and there is no savior besides me. The old Levitical system of the priesthood of Israel was a shadowy copy of the original high priest Jesus Christ. He showed up before and after the Levites. And that's the fundamental principle of Hebrews chapter 7. He came before and he came after. He was high priest before and he is high priest after. How exactly does that work? John 8:56. Jesus said, "Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it. He saw it and was glad." Well, the Pharisees freaked out. When did it? What? When did Abraham ever see you? You're not even 50 years old. And you're telling us Abraham saw your day? How is that even possible? In the person of Melchizedek, Genesis 14. Where Abraham had, I believe, a face-to-face with Jesus Christ, the original high priest, king of peace, king of righteousness, priest of God Most High. Psalm 110 tells us, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We now live at a time where the priesthood has changed hands, but again, not to a new version, which itself would become obsolete. And that's the thing about the old priesthood. Every new high priest was going to fade and die. Say you like the high priest who came on the scene. Oh yeah, we really like Zadok. He's a good guy. Besides, we just like to say Zadok. And he's our favorite high priest. And he's been good to our kids. And he's a humble man. And wow, he just has such an amazing priesthood. And he dies. And some other guy comes along. And now you've got to get used to him. Not anymore. Because the original is on the scene. And he himself will never be obsolete. He is the original of all priestly ministry according to a priestly order which both precedes and exceeds the Levitical order. It is not bound to the old law or even to the limited mortal life of the Jewish priesthood. By the way, we sang a song this morning that has a wrong theology to it. I've never seen this before, Rachel. I think it's a song, Ever Be and it's talking about the the ring and your love you know love of old and all that and like a like a covenant of old no 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 the love of Jesus Christ is not like a covenant of old it is the new covenant and i'm getting ahead of myself <laughs> bigger better greater original and forever that is jesus And Hebrews 8, what it does for us now is bring together, reveal for us this dynamic contrast between the original high priest and the obsolete priesthood. Now I'm going to give you just three things to jot down as we go through, if you'd like to. You don't need to. In fact, they're not my three favorite points I've ever come up with, but I'll give them to you anyway. (laughs) First one is something to offer. Something to offer verse 1 again the main point in what has been said is this we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched not man for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer something to offer What did the previous priesthood have to offer? If you think about it, really only what the people brought to them. They did not have an intrinsic offering. They had to offer what was brought. And what was brought? Grain and wine, rams, lambs, bulls, goats, doves, pigeons. These were the offerings. These were the blood sacrifices day after day and it was never enough so they would continue week after week. Still not enough so they would continue year after year and it was never ever enough. For centuries. How frustrating is that? It's like the to-do list that you never finish. It just continues on and on and on. Got to keep doing it year after year. Anybody tired of Christmas? Okay, a few of you are willing to raise your hands. The rest of you are like Grinches. (laughs) Good morning, Ebenezer Scrooge. (laughs) I confess to you. Now, I love Christmas, but this year, getting all the decorations out was a little tiring. It's getting to be a little much. And, and Cheryl and I have had the conversation. We're doing it for the kids. We're doing it for the kids, you know? I can imagine someday, a glorious day out in the future, when Cheryl and I will get out the Christmas tree and it will be that tall. We'll stick it on the dining room table, hang an ornament and go, Hallelujah. <laughs> Year after year after year. You should go to my in-laws' house. Go, go to their side of the house and, and see how they decorate for Christmas. It's one table. And I used to think, there are a couple of Scrooges over there. <laughs> Bill and Sharon Scrooge. <laughs> this year, I went over there, I saw that glorious little table, and I just went, can I hang out here for a while? <laughs> It's always going on, but it's never enough. Never enough. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year after year, make perfect those who draw near. It's never enough. Look at verse 4 of chapter 10. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sin. Do you ever feel like it's just never enough? Now now, seriously, in your life, do you ever feel like no matter what I do, it's never good enough? I can never be good enough at work. I am never good enough at home. I am never good enough for my family, in my marriage, in my church. I try and I try and I try and it's it's never enough. I think a few of us have felt or feel that way. And you start to secretly wonder over time as year in and year out, it's never enough. Like perhaps you are becoming obsolete. Like maybe you'll never get there. Enter Jesus Our great high priest with something to offer. What is it Jesus has to offer? Only himself. Only his entire self. Keep in chapter 10 and look at verse 5. Therefore when he comes into the world he says sacrifice and offering. You have not desired but a body. You have prepared for me. Chapter 10 verse 10. Skip down and look at this by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, when? Once for all. Once for all, done, good enough. I'll never be good enough. But He's perfect. And what He has to offer, that something to offer, please get this, it crushes once and for all the lie behind low or no self-esteem. What is that lie? That my value is found within? That my value is found in the work of my hands or my accomplishments? That's what makes me who I am? Brothers and sisters, if we believe that, it will never be enough. You will only always feel like you're a loser like you're not arriving, like everybody else is out ahead of you. Everyone else is better because, wow, I just can't get there. Hey, listen to this. The value that Jesus Christ places on your life is His life. Let that sink in. Whatever you think of yourself or whatever others around you may have said about you, the value that God places on you is Jesus. That's how much He values you. And I'm not overstating this. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It should have been me on the cross. But it wasn't. It was Jesus. Why? Because God said, Rick matters that much to me. Rick's value to me is measured in the life of Jesus Christ. Something to offer? He only offered Himself. By contrast, the previous priestly system was nothing more than, number two, a shadow to stand for. A shadow to stand for. Back in chapter 8, verse 4. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. That's Exodus 25, verse 40. Make it exact, Moses, he was told. And in fact, in Exodus 36, verse 1, God says now, Bezalel and Aholiab and every skillful person in whom the Lord has put skill and understanding to know how to perform all the work in the construction of the sanctuary shall perform in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. One of the interesting things about studying the book of Exodus is you discover how meticulous it could be called the book of the meticulous. Because every inch of the tabernacle is described every fabric used for the screens and the veil, every pole, every socket, every piece of furnishing that would go into the tabernacle is described meticulously so that the artisans and the craftsmen would know exactly how to do it. There was no room for artistic flair. Well, let's put a little extra bulb on the top of the mercy seat. No, you don't. You don't do anything other than what is exactly told to you, Bezalel, Oholiab, these are the two like, lead craftsmen, no creative embellishment. Why? Because with the tabernacle on earth, God was giving a copy of a heavenly reality. People are often saying, man, I wish I could see what heaven looks like. Look at the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle was a copy, a shadowy representation of heavenly things. Well, you're saying that it had sockets and, and poles and, and screens that, look, it's a shadow. In the same way that your shadow is not a very good representation of you, but it is a representation. If you do, you know, stand by a wall and have light behind you and you look at your shadow, you can tell, well, that's kind of my shape, my outline. But it's not you. It's a shadowy copy of the greater reality. In Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10, about halfway through chapter 10, we read about altars and thrones and vessels of ministry and things which in the tabernacle were simply earthly representations or again, shadows of heavenly things. They were shadows to stand for something else. Copies of the greater reality. Now, just think this through quickly. There were seven furnishings in the tabernacle. You'd walk in to the outer court of the tabernacle and the first thing you would see there would be the first furnishing, the bronze altar. And then behind it, the bronze laver for washing. The altar for sacrifice there in the outer court of the tabernacle. From there, you would go into the holy place. And in the holy place, there was directly to the left the golden lampstand. Seven lamps, oil lamps, all lit. Burning all the time. Kept burning by the priest. Straight in front of you. The altar of incense. Covered over in pure gold, as was the lampstand. And then to the right, the table of showbread. Also pure gold covered. So it would be beautiful in there. And then you would pass through the veil into the Holy of Holies. Two more pieces of furniture were left. Two. The Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, and, and these things represented something else. Represented heavenly things. Today in Israel, there's a, a group called the Temple Institute, and we've actually visited the Temple Institute a few times. We've we've talked to some of the proprietors there, and and actually in the past it's been a little more interesting than it has been recently. But but they have claimed now to recreate, to have recreated everything necessary for the new temple. They have a golden lampstand. They have a a golden altar of incense and, and a golden table of showbread. They are ready to go. They've got all the articles, all of the utensils, all of the vessels of ministry. They've got an altar. A bronze altar. They have a bronze labor. All of it's ready to go. Good to go. And people see these things. And when we go on our Israel tours and and we see these different representations and mock-ups and preparations for the next temple, people look at that like I have in the past and gone, ooh, ah, wow, cool. But you know what? What we ought to be saying is Sad. 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 It's like you're walking around with a flip phone trying to prove to people that it's cool. They're coming back, man. They're coming back. No, they're not, you moron. Put it away. But we've got, we've got a golden lampstand. Hey, that's great. It's sad. Oh, no, but you don't understand. We have the altar of incense ready to go. It's, it's sad because it's a shadow without substance it is not the real thing Colossians 2.17 says there are things which are a mere shadow of what is to come but the substance belongs to Christ He is the substance He's the original and that which was a copy has now become obsolete and the Hebrew writer is saying why would you go back to what's obsolete go to the original run to Jesus He offers for us a better ministry, a real, vital, eternal ministry. And one of the greatest tragedies of what I'm talking about in Christianity today is when Christians focus on earthly representations of heavenly things. When we have the heaven. When we have been given... Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. We have Jesus, our great high priest. We are able to walk with Him, to be with Him, and yet, lights, camera, action, church. We get all focused on shadows. Shadows. Shadows that stand for something else, buildings and experiences and, and little empires. Rather than the kingdom of God, which is first and foremost spiritual. Well, spiritual, that's that's less substantive, isn't it? Wrong. It is more substantive. It is weightier. It is heavier. It is thicker, it is stronger, it is more genuine and more real than the physical realm in which we live. We've got it backwards. That's why I love the C.S. Lewis book, The Great Divorce. If you've read it, it's fantastic. He goes on this amazing bus ride to heaven and to hell. But when he's in heaven, he describes stepping off of the bus and and seeing these phantoms and realizing these phantoms are his fellow passengers' And then he looks down into the grass and realizes he's a phantom. Because he is not as real as he thought he was, but heaven is real. The blades of grass are running right up through his feet because they are so solid and so real. And C.S. Lewis is making a fantastic theological point. And that is that the spiritual realm is more real than the physical is. The physical is a shadowy representation. And so when we gather any church sanctuary... It is a shadowy representation of the real thing. You know what's real when we're in the midst of worship and you get lost in the presence of Jesus? That's real. Turning up the band is not real, though I, I, I would say, turn it up." For my, you know some of you are going, "No, no. yeah. Well, you don't like Christmas either, do you? <laughs> These are window dressings. And by the way, it goes either way. Turn it up. It's a window dressing. Turn it down. It's window dressing. Play more hymns. Window dressing. Play more current stuff. Window dressing. That's not the real stuff. What is real is first and foremost our High Priest Jesus Christ. What is real is second to that, our relationship with Him. Our prayers are real. Our worship is real. Our response to Him. That's real. These are heavenly realities. Don't get sidetracked by the shadows and the copies. Bigger buildings and more programs and and more events and and things which give us a buzz. Man, that is a shadow. And in verse 6 he says, but now He has obtained a more excellent ministry. By as much as He is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. A more excellent ministry. You could say it's awesomer. <laughs> I was at Taekwondo the other night and, and uh, the, the the instructor, it was really funny, she said, I want you guys all to be awesomer. And one of the kids goes, don't you mean more awesome? <laughs> she goes, I'm going to stick with awesomer. <laughs> He has a more awesome, a awesomer ministry. But what is it that makes Jesus' ministry so much more excellent? Look at verse 1 again. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has, note this, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. What makes his ministry more excellent? There are two huge implications here. Implication number one is that in the Bible, the right hand where Jesus has taken his seat is not uh, lesser. It is the place of power and authority. It describes in the Jewish mindset power and authority. He is at the right hand. He's the one. Psalm 110 again says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And a Jewish person reading that back when David wrote Psalm 110 would say, Sit at my right hand. Oh, so Messiah has power and all the authority of God himself. Exactly. Matthew 26, verse 62, tells us that the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And when the high priest And the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, heard that. They lost it. Because they heard the right hand. And they recognized that Jesus was equating Himself with God. We have such a high priest. God made flesh. God among us. God who has the power and the authority in Jesus Christ. But we also have this high priest who has taken His seat. And I can't overstate this, because along with that place of power and authority, that's the first implication. The second one is is that he took his seat. You know, among all the furnishings of the tabernacle, there was only one seat. I've said in the past there was no chair. No, there was the mercy seat. But no high priest would dare take his seat on the mercy seat. Can you even imagine some knucklehead doing that? He wouldn't even—he wouldn't even make it seated. He would be just positioning himself to sit down and psh, ashes. I mean, that's how fast it would happen. He would be done. He don't sit on the mercy seat. That's where God meets with us. For the high priest, once a year, even to enter the holy of holies. Even to approach the mercy seat was done with great fear and trepidation as He came to sprinkle the blood on the Day of Atonement and then back out of there quickly. Rope tied around His ankle. You know why. So if He died, they could pull the body out. I mean, how encouraging is that? How would you like to know that when you draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace in time of need, we had to tie a rope around your ankle just in case you died? You see the difference between the two priesthoods? That we approach Him with boldness and confidence and joy and peace and love. Well, so there was the mercy seat. Yeshua, the great high priest, sat down. He now is seated. What did the mercy seat represent? The throne of grace. So it was a shadowy representation of the reality in heaven which is the throne of grace which all along God wanted us to be able to approach. And Jesus has taken His seat upon the throne of grace. And we talked about this midweek, but I'll repeat it here. He doesn't just make intercession for us. He is intercession. He is intercession incarnate. He hasn't just pled my case, He bled my case. And as He takes His seat at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, it's not petitions constantly going up. It's not Jesus going, Oh Father, please let Him off the hook here. Oh Father, please forgive Him. Oh Father, it's going to be okay. Really, Listen to me. Look at me. Don't look at Him. Look at me. That's not what's going on. He's not marching around the courtroom trying to make a case for you or for me. He's seated. The work's done. And all of the representation of the forgiveness and the redemption of our sin is on Him. It's pierced hands and feet, not petitions. He is the intercession. And 2,000 years ago, the defense rested When He cried from the cross to "Die, it is finished. And now, get this, His presence is my defense. His presence is my defense. Look over in chapter 9, verse 24, and I'm jumping around a bit because 8, 9, and 10 are really one major section of the sermon. We have to take some time to get through it all. But verse 24 of chapter 9, he says, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. That's huge. Why would anyone cling to a shadow when we have that? Why would I pray to an icon? Why would I ever bow down and kiss the feet of a statue? People do it all the time. But it's a a statue of Jesus. No, it's not. Do you know what He looked like? Did the artist? It's a statue. I've told you before, when we were in the Philippines, going to the Catholic church there in Cebu, large, ornate, beautiful church with icons and statues and images everywhere, and you come up and you look at the the statue to Mary and she doesn't have any toes. She's to—she's a toeless wonder. Why? Because her toes have been kissed off. I'm not kidding. They have ropes now in front of Mary because they don't want to lose her. Shadows. Shadows. Copies at best. And, and even our copies are incorrect. Even our copies are not copies of realities. Why would we choose that? Well, I don't do that. I'm not kissing no statue, Pastor. Okay. Are you involved in any external ritual that you think is saving you? Or vague belief system or cardboard cutout or virtual religion? He's the original. He is the original. He came with something to offer rather than a shadow to stand for something that He had to offer. It's it's Him. And He has enacted number three, A superior covenant forevermore. A superior covenant. Chapter 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Note that. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, that would be the old covenant, on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. That translation is a little weird sounding to you, just hang with me. What the author, the, the, the writer here is doing, he's quoting Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34. You might note that. It's a prophecy of Jeremiah. The quote is almost exact there in verses 8 and 9 with one little exception and I'll show you that in just a minute. But here he busts open the reality of the new covenant. The new covenant. A better covenant for a better ministry based on the original high priest. The word covenant there is diapheke and it means Two things, really. A covenant, the way it's listed, the Greek word, it could be an agreement between two parties. A covenant agreement. We see that. I could have gone into this. I'm not going to. But in the covenant, Genesis 15, between God and Abraham, where they divide the the pieces of the animal, and normally you would walk through that together. Well, then God walks through it by himself. Abraham doesn't. He just wakes up after it's all said and done, which tells us that's a one-sided covenant. But typically, what they would do to cut covenant is they would divide an animal, they would sacrifice an animal, and lay the halves on either side of a pathway of blood, and you would walk the pathway of blood together, signifying you were in together. You were in covenant together, you and the other person, a two-party agreement, and if either one of you violate the agreement, you're dead meat. Okay? That was the picture. So, diatheke can be that, a a two-party agreement. Or, it can be a testament or a will of one party. One sits down and says, this is what I intend to do. Now get this, the difference is important. The old Mosaic Covenant, not the Abrahamic Covenant, that was unconditional. In fact, of all the covenants that God made, seven covenants that He made in the Hebrew Scriptures... Six of them are unconditional. One was conditional. One was a two-party agreement, and that's the Old Covenant. When he talks about the Old Covenant, that's what he's talking about, the Law of Moses. It was an Old Covenant agreement because it was between the parties of Israel and God. And we talked about last week, Deuteronomy. 28 and 29 in that section talks about the blessings and the cursings that come of this agreement. And the people entered into the agreement with the Lord. A two-party covenant. The new covenant is unconditional. It is a one-sided testament that God enacted all on His own. God said through Jeremiah, days are coming when I will effect verse 8 a new covenant well the pastor told us already back in verse 6 that this better covenant has been enacted on better promises jeremiah around 720 or so bc said the new covenant's coming and now the writer says it has been enacted it's underway it's already written in Okay, so when was that? When was the new covenant literally enacted? In a ceremony that is at the very heart of the Jewish experience. It's called Passover. Oh, not the original Passover. The last one. On that dark night luke twenty two nineteen when he had taken bread and giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, "This is my body which is given to you. do this in remembrance of me and in the same way, the cup after they had eaten, saying, "This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. first time the phrase new covenant was used right there was used by Jesus at the last Supper. This is the new covenant. He passed it around. they had to wrap their brains around this new covenant. What does that mean? What is he signifying here? Now, Luke 22, Paul repeats this in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 24 through 26, repeats the exact same thing, and in verse 26, listen, he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why? Because you see, the new covenant required a death. This is the great difference, the greatest difference between the old and the new covenants. You can read it in chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place, for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the, of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. A covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. We'll read more about that on Wednesday night. Here's the big difference. The old covenant was an agreement between parties. The new covenant is a will. It's the will of God, you might say. The will of God, as in the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. I have a will. I have a will. And mark my words, my kids are not going to get a red cent until I die. (laughs) Even then, it all goes to my wife Cheryl. And besides, I plan to live long enough to be a burden to my children. Here's the thing. A last will and testament requires a death. The old covenant was simply an agreement because there was no death. The death of animals was not enough to signify the covenant. It has to be enacted based on the death of the one who makes it, and that's the new covenant. And the one who made it made it on the night before he died. Think about the presence of mind of Jesus Christ to know that he had to enact the new covenant and then die to seal it. Which is what took place. Ceremonially, He enacted the new covenant on the night of His betrayal. Officially, as His blood poured out, it went into effect. It's a marvelous truth. But wait, wait. Who are the original and intended recipients of this one-sided, unconditional will and testament? Who's it for? Look at verse 8 again. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now Jeremiah is being quoted here. And and when he wrote the prophecy, even when he was writing this very prophecy that I'm going to make this new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, guess what? The house of Israel was already gone. 7.22 7.22 B.C., Assyria, destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. The house of Israel was no more. And Jeremiah sits down and writes out this prophecy, I'm going to bring a new covenant for the house of Israel. (laughs) What house of Israel? It's destroyed. And by the way, the house of Judah was not far behind. The bad boys of Babylon were barking on the border of Jerusalem. (laughs) Did you practice that, Rick? Well, only once or twice. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Ready to take down the house of Judah, and that is when God said, "Oh, and by the way, I'm bringing a new covenant for y'all. You're destroyed. You're about to be destroyed. But I got something in the works. I got something good ahead." Man, the, the, the people in the house of Judah—they thought the temple would save them. The problem is, the temple was a shadow. It couldn't save them. It wasn't the real thing. It was a representation, a copy. And as the pastor, by the way, quotes this ancient prophecy, get this, understand this, he nowhere declares that the houses of Israel and Judah would be replaced by the church. We've been over this many times through the years that the church does not replace Israel. That is heresy. That is not what Scripture teaches the promise made in the Hebrew Scriptures through the prophet Jeremiah was, I am making a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then repeated by the Hebrew pastor. This bothered me as a kid because I kind of bought into the idea of replacement theology. I just kind of assumed that was the thing. The Jews were obsolete. I didn't understand what the Scriptures really said. But I would read Hebrews. I remember reading Hebrews and saying, wait a minute. He says, I'm going to do this new covenant. He doesn't say for the church. He says for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And I would ask the question in Sunday school, well, who's this for? And they'd look at me and say, oh, you're such a problem. And I'd say, I know, but who's this for? And they would say, well, the house of Israel and the house of Judah is the church. Wrong! Wrong answer! No! No! Let me be as clear and succinct as I can. The house of Israel is the house of Israel. The house of Judah is the house of Judah. What about us? See, that's our first question. We're so selfish. What about us? Hey, you've been grafted in by faith in Jesus Christ. Don't get ahead of me here. We're going there. You're part of the deal, as it were. But listen, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, Paul writes. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And we could actually add in, because the Bible does, and then again to the Jew. Which is what sometimes Christians miss. You see, you've got to go beyond Romans chapter 1 and get all the way to chapter 11. Where in verse 25 it says, I do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery, so you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Which is a quote of Isaiah 59. And then he says, Paul's quoting, he quotes Jeremiah 31-34. He says, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Who sins? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now there's a slight variation in the translation that I mentioned before. If you compare Hebrews Chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, compare that with Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32. It's almost exact until you get to the last part of verse 9. It exactly translates, On the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, that's word for word exact translation from the Hebrew Scriptures. But listen, it changes here. We read in our New Testaments, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. I read that and I think, that doesn't really sound like God. I just didn't care for him. You know, it's like a, it's like a food item or something. Did you try the dish that I cooked up, honey? Yeah, I didn't care for it. God didn't, no, help me understand this. So we go back to the original Hebrew, which you would read in Jeremiah 31 verse 32, and it reads, They did not continue in my covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them. Wow. Although I was a husband to them. Why the difference? It's fair to ask those questions, by the way, when you read a a quote in the New Testament from the Old and it's slightly different. Ask why. Question that. Seek to understand because there's a reason for it. The technical reason is is simple on this. Technically, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 9, the pastor is quoting from the Septuagint, which you all know by now, hopefully, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So it's Hebrew to Greek, now to English. So we're a couple of translations down the line, and that's why you see these slight differences sometimes. Most of that Septuagint version was what was used in the first century. So you get quotes that's coming right out of the Septuagint. But if you read Jeremiah 31 and 32, that's from what's called the Masoretic text. I'm not going to get into what... But that's original Hebrew is the idea there. So there will be slight variations. And you can just say, okay, so there's the technical difference. No big deal. It doesn't really change the heart of God here. But I want to take it one step further and ask the question, Lord, you're perfect. Why did you allow the use of the Septuagint... For the New Testament, which is slightly different than the original Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. Why would you do that, Lord? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize God is using both languages to get His Word across. To explain something to us. What is that here? God was a husband to Israel, but could no longer care for them because they broke the covenant of marriage. Do you understand? He wanted to care for them. He was a husband to them, saying, come and, and, and just, just keep my covenant. Be in this marital relationship with me. And they violated it. They went a after the other gods of the other nations. They destroyed the marriage covenant. And because of that, he could no longer care for them. It's not that he didn't care for them. You know, we, we read this in the English, I didn't care for them. No, He couldn't care for them because they broke the marriage covenant and they were no longer a wife to Him as their husband. Let me put it a little more succinctly. How can a husband properly care for a wife who rejects the marriage? How do you do that? You can try, but if she's walked away, how do you do it? So what did God do in response to His wife Israel who left Him Did He serve them papers? Boot them out? Reject them? Forever? No. Before all this broke apart, He said, I'm going to effect a new covenant. I'm going to offer you something so much better than this. Better why? Because it's not going to depend on you. This is going to be one-sided. This is unconditional. The old covenant was a marriage covenant that was violated by Israel so God could not care for them properly. The new covenant is a last will and testament consummated at the cross. And thereby the blood of Jesus, we now are saved. Now you could say, but, but Israel did reject Him as a nation, right? yes. Yes. But the new covenant is for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And the day is coming. I love that phrase. Behold, Jeremiah says, verse 8, days are coming. Isn't Israel out of the picture? Hey, day ain't over yet. Days are coming when this will be affected, and when God will fulfill the covenant to Israel and the Jewish people. Verse 10, He describes it beautifully, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I'll write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, stay with me a little longer here. These Hebrew Christians, recipients of this teaching letter, were an early fulfillment in the first century of this promise. That God was now in a new relationship with the house of Israel. That's what, that's what the Hebrew pastor is saying to his Jewish Christian buddies. He's saying, listen, we, haven't, we are in the new covenant. This is you. This is me. And for all the old covenant of our forefathers and the previous priesthood, it's all obsolete. This is new. This is what God said He was going to do for us. But that fulfillment continues to be enacted today among Gentiles as well. Why? Because, because, listen, it's not based on Jewish agreement. It is based on God's will. It is for the Jewish people to receive and to respond and to have the grace of God and to enter into this new covenant by the blood of Jesus. But it was God's will. It was His decision So that now, every single time a person, any person, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, every time a person receives Jesus Christ as Lord by faith, the new covenant is enacted in their life. It's really not a new covenant to you and to me because we weren't part of the old one. Right? But we enter into this better covenant. And the final fulfillment of this better promise will be seen again as we come back around in the houses of Israel and Judah. After those days. Note that. He says that in verse 10. After those days, says the Lord. After what days? Jesus called it the times of the Gentiles. The Gospel was first and foremost to Israel. And some of Israel received that. Some of the Jewish people early on, especially the church was primarily Jewish in the first century. But then it was rejected, and the times of the Gentiles really took over. And for the last couple thousand years, Gentiles have been being saved. Jews have too, by the way. But at the end of the times of the Gentiles, we come back around, and Israel will once again realize their God and their Savior. And all Israel will be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Read Romans 11 for more clarification on that. But right now, right now, the new covenant, I love this, it is a heart and soul promise. Heart and soul. I'll put my laws into their minds, that's the soul. I will write them on their hearts. What does that mean? It means that this this covenantal promise, this this new relationship God has offered, is understood in the mind, in the soul. We, We get it! But, it is experienced in the heart. And there is a vast difference between understanding and experience. I understood when I first met my wife that we might be able to be in a relationship together. I understood what marriage was a picture of. I had knowledge of a husband and wife, you go through the ceremony and then you're together the rest of your life. I got that. I understood it. I had no idea the experience of it until I entered into it. Until it became not a, a head issue, but a heart issue. Brothers and sisters, too many Christians are living in the soul. Too many Christians get it, understand it, is a head issue. It makes sense. I want that. Even, even claim the promises, and I believe are saved. But are not understanding at an experiential level, not getting the revelation because it's not translating. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write my, my laws. I'm gonna put them into their minds so they'll get them, they'll understand, and I'm gonna write them on their hearts. Man, that is something that is internal and it's experiential and it's personal and it's intimate and it's real. It's not a shadow. It's not a copy. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ that is as real as any relationship you can imagine. I would say more real because He had something to offer Himself. It's not a shadow to stand for something else. It's a superior covenant forevermore Verse 11, they shall not teach everyone, his fellow citizens, and everyone, his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me. From the least, or the the smallest, to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And when he said a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. But whatever is obsolete and growing old is ready to to disappear. Here's what he's getting at. Don't go back to the obsolete. Don't return to the shadow lands, the old rules, the old religion, the old lifestyle. And he would say to you and to me this morning, don't go back to the old sin. You're a new creation. You're in a new covenant relationship. Don't go back. Don't go to the old you know the one thing that he considers obsolete? Jesus, that is. When you come into a relationship with Him, your sin. It's obsolete. I will remember, he says, their sins no more. Draw near to Jesus, the original high priest of the better covenant. And don't go back to the shadows. Until Jesus comes, what do we do with this new covenant? we're in it, right? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you're in that new covenant. If you're not a follower of Jesus, oh man, jump in. The water's great. It's a better life, a better ministry. But what do we do once we've entered into that new covenant? I mean, we're waiting. We know the, the fulfillment in the house of Israel and the house of Judah is coming. That's a marvelous thing. What do I do until then? I'm going to end on this. The concept of the New Covenant introduced by Jesus in Luke 22 at the Last Supper is repeated by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. And then it's talked about four different times in this Hebrew sermon. There's only one other place in the entire New Testament where the phrase New Covenant is used. And I want to end there and read this to you. So just listen. It is actually 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2. Actually, it's verse 6, but I'm going to read to it. You are our letter, Paul says, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested or, or seen that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. And then he says, listen, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Servants of the New Covenant. That's who we are. Servants of the New Covenant. And this only hit me this morning. There's another way to say that. Servants of the New Covenant. We are a new priesthood. This is what's huge to me. We are not of the Levitical priesthood. We are priests following after the order of Melchizedek. That's our priesthood. With Jesus our great high priest, we follow along. He has made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 1.6 We are of the high priestly ministry of Melchizedek. Jesus the high priest. And we are the servants of that better covenant. And it doesn't get any better than that. Let's pray together. Father, make us those servants who are not servants of shadows and copies, but of the real thing. Servants of of the high priest. Servants of the better covenant. Servants of the better ministry, Lord. Would You lift us up and open our eyes to see the glory that surrounds us. Your glory, Father. And as servants of Yours, may we reflect that in our lives and live it out and serve the new covenant. Father, make us servants of the promises, a servants of the call, servants of the invitation to a lost and dying world. Servants who speak often of the sacrifice of Jesus that was perfect. Servants of a future that is not growing old and ready to disappear. Oh, Father, it's coming. And we are servants of this ministry. Lift up our eyes, Father, to see this. In Jesus' name, amen.